Well, some of our women are working through a book written by Jerry Bridges, and it's called Trusting God. I believe there should be, well, oh no, it's gone. There it is. Now you look at that and you go, what in the world is that? That is a Cecropia moth. And he writes about a Cecropia moth. And he says this. One of the many fascinating events in nature is the emergence of, a, of the Cecropia moth from its cocoon. That moth is about this size, all right? It's hand breadth, it's, a, it's huge. An event that occurs only with much struggle on the part of the moth to free itself. The story is frequently told of someone who watched a moth go through this struggle. In an effort to help and not realizing the necessity of the struggle, the viewer snipped the shell of the cocoon. Now soon the moth came out with its wings all crimped and shriveled. But as the person watched, the wings remained weak. The moth, in a few moments, would have stretched its wings to fly, but now it was doomed to crawling out its brief life in frustrations of, of ever being the beautiful creature God created it to be. Bridges continued. What the person in the story did not realize was that the struggle to emerge from the cocoon was an essential part of developing the muscle system of the moth's body and pushing the body fluids into its wings to expand them. By unwisely seeking to cut short the moth's struggle, the watcher had actually crippled the moth and doomed its existence. The adversities of life are much like the cocoon of the Cecropia moth. God uses them to develop the spiritual muscle system of our lives. Trials, suffering, tribulation. If we're honest, if we can, we run. I'd just as soon not have those things in my life. And when they do happen, when they are allowed, we wonder and we ask the three-letter word that everyone from a toddler all the way up to an old guy asks, why? Why, God? Why? The short answer, and I guess we can go home, to conform us into the image of his son. But we need to look at what the word of God has to say and what it said to the church in Smyrna and what it has to say to us, even more importantly, what it has to say to us today. Last time we were in the book of Revelation, together we saw the first letter to one of the seven churches, that was to Ephesus. This church had done everything right. They were faithful. They were doctrinally sound. They were busy. But they had one thing that Christ had against them. What was it? They had lost their first love. Well, this morning we listened to what our Lord and their Lord had to say to his church in Smyrna. And the name of this, the sermon title this morning, the name of it is Consolation in Suffering. Consolation in Suffering. 
Would you stand with me? As I read this morning's passage, it comes from Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. The word of the Lord says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, and may it strengthen us spiritually, and may God, through his Holy Spirit, strengthen us for all of the things that will come, that will come. Please be seated. Well, first of all, I just want to tell you a little bit about Smyrna. I mean, if you're like me, you want something that's written in the Bible, I want to know what this place is like. Well, first of all, it was a beautiful city, and it's now known as Izmar. Izmar. It's in western Turkey. It was roughly 35 miles northwest of Ephesus. It had a fine road leading out of the harbor, all right, so it led to and from the harbor. So it had the most and the bestest people traveling to it and people traveling from it. Here's a picture of the city as it is today, and you can see the harbor. It had great commerce. It was one of the most prosperous cities in the area. And the city had long been an ally of Rome. They were very close. They were very kissy-huggy. And because of that, they were a free city. And they also had many Roman temples in it. The main temple that I really want to concentrate on this morning was dedicated to Tiberius. Now, you would say, why, was this, why is this such a big deal? Well, it was dedicated in 26 AD when our Lord was still alive and on the earth. But later on, when John wrote this book, this temple was still in existence, and the emperor at the time, Domitian, he ordered that people would worship him. Now, for most people, that's okay. You just say the magic words, you burn a little incense, and you're good to go. All you have to say is Caesar is Lord. But if you didn't do this, if you didn't do this, you were considered a traitor to the empire. In our modern language, we would probably say, you're not a patriot. You're not a patriot of this country. Which led to a plethora of bad things, of tribulation, that the people of this faithful church endured. And added to the mix in Smyrna, there was a group of, of Jewish, Jewish people, not Jewish believers, Jewish residents that resided there. They had, once Jerusalem had been destroyed, they moved to Smyrna because, face it, 
there were many things going on here. There were many business opportunities, and the Jewish people are very good at business. They were there, and they were antagonistic towards Christians. They hated them. And any Christian who stood up, they were marked. Not physically marked, but they were marked. Those people, those people, those people are Christians. And if you were, as a group, they were attacked. And as an, indiv as an individual, you were not in a good place. Individual actions that a Christian did, oh, they weren't normal, so they were reported. And the authorities took action, they would be arrested, and some actually would have been killed for their faith, and we'll see that later on. But we need to look at the details. And this morning's big idea is simply this. In the second message to the seven churches, Jesus exhorts his church in Smyrna to remain faithful concerning their present and future persecutions. Remain faithful in their present and their future persecutions. Well, speaking of Jesus, he is the one who gives counsel. And just a little aside here, when we look at the seven churches, every time that Jesus announces it's he who's doing the, the speaking, he names a different attribute or a different truth about who he is, and it's especially detailed for that specific church. This is what Christ said to the men and women in Smyrna. The words of the first and the last. All right, so what's he saying here? The words of the first and the last. Christ is the one, capital O, all right? Not single, not a small O, big O. He's the one in control over everything. He was there before time began, and he will be there after the world is gone. And we have a new heaven and a new earth. Boost Fanning writes, he, speaking of Jesus, reminds the church that God and himself are the origin and the goal of all things. Meaning just this, God doesn't change. God's on his throne. Yesterday, today, and forever. The first and the last. He encompasses everything. They would have to have, have, to have thought, how big is your God? Now remember, we are talking about persecution today. How Big is your God. Maybe not even persecution, suffering. How big is your God? The one giving counsel also adds this truth about himself. And before we look, I want to ask you a question. Do you think that going through something yourself, and what I mean by going through something, if you go through a trial or a tribulation, do your words have more credibility? Do your actions have more credibility? I believe they do. If I have seen someone who's, I, I cannot myself go and say, well, I know how you feel if you've lost a child. But if I know someone who has lost a child, I would, not, I would not hesitate to bring them in and ask them to counsel some, with me 
How is this happening? How, is, how do you feel? What, is, what did God do in your life? Someone, it gives credibility to your words. And Jesus, he is the first and the last, but he also gives the suffering church in Smyrna this truth. I am the first and the last, but who died and came to life? Who died and came to life? Now, why is that important? Because they know how he perished. He didn't perish on it, well, from a heart attack quickly or a brain aneurysm. They knew that Jesus had experienced the most horrific treatment that anyone would ever receive. He was tortured physically. He was abandoned by his people. Even his closest friends left him in his hour of need. His blood was shed. He died. He was buried. Three days later, he's alive. Now, why is that important to people who are going through suffering and persecution? Because if you are in Christ... going where your Lord is. If he was resurrected, you will be resurrected as well. The grave couldn't hold him. And I'm looking at a bunch of widows and widowers here. The grave will not hold your husband or your wife. You will meet them again. Praise God. He's alive forevermore. And as they face persecution, as we will soon see martyrdom, Christ's sovereign control over the life and destiny must be their strong anchor. You have to have something that hold, to hold on to. It anchors you. Is it your anchor? Is it yours? When disappointments come... Do we just say this particular verse that I'm going to say now and just as a platitude? That we know that for those who love God and all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose? Do we really believe that or do we just throw that out and just say, well, you know, here, this is a good little bumper sticker? No, we have to hold on to that church. We have to understand that this is truth. How great's your God, Smyrna? How big is your God? How big and strong and powerful is your God? Well, Jesus now gives his beloved church the commendation. Look at our text and continuing in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Wow, you're rich. Well, church history explains that the majority of the believers in this, at least in this city and most in Asia Minor, they were slaves. What does that mean to us in our day? These folks are day workers working minimal, minimum wage jobs with no people for OSHA taking care of them or government assistance. They were at the mercy of their masters. If they owned stores, if someone was, as I would say, beneficial and, and blessed enough to own a store at the time when they became a Christian, are you going to buy from that person over there who hates our government? 
Are you going to buy from them? If they see you going into that store, they, they, you might be one of them. You might be arrested with them. They're marked as Christians. Why would you buy from someone you don't understand? But understand this, there's several different words that Jesus could have used for poor here. These people are not just, well, you know, their, their clothing might be a little shaggy, but they can still go into Walmart and, and buy their groceries. It's okay. No, he deliberately chose a word which means not only poor, but having nothing. They had nothing. They had no place to lay their head. He knew that they were being taken advantage of and probably even being looted, their property being seized. They're poor. They are equivalent to beggars. Now I ask you, is begging easy? Is that an easy thing to do? What's their, what's their spiritual, what's their psyche like? God, do you really love me and I'm having to beg for my existence? Jesus says he knows. He knows. The Greek word that's translated know is oida, and I only say that because this. He knows not from just knowledge of it. He knows something because he has experienced it. He knows. He has been through this. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're going through. He experienced it personally. Jesus sees things differently than the world. He understands what it's like to be poor. But he understands yet what it's like to be rich. Jesus and God see things differently, correct? Then can we agree on that? Then I'm talking about what is what does Jesus look at? God looks at man looks on the outward, but God looks on what? The heart. What the what the world look at when they saw these Smyrna Christians? They probably did this. Oh, there goes one of these people. I make sure I get this. Or should it be on the other side? I don't know. That's an L, right? Losers. Fool. Idiots. <laughs> but Christ says what? You are rich. You're rich. We live, those, I'm sorry, those outside the faith live for now. Those outside of the faith, understand, they live for now. What they can have now, what they can get now, and what can they expend and expound and just burn up. They live for now. There's nothing more. We should live differently we should live for the future. We should live for the future. Riches now are taxed. I don't hear an amen from that, do I? Riches now are taxed. You have a stored future in Christ. 
where no taxes will come in. Nothing will be able to come in and take that and take it away. I could put it this way. There are no bear markets in Christ's economy. Listen to what Peter writes concerning real riches. He wrote to the dysphoria. He said, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, and perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's true faith. Jesus also knows and experienced the lies that are being levied against his own bride. John writes, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Just as Jesus was lied about, just as he was betrayed, just as how he was slandered and it brought to, to the point of death, it cost him his life. And it was done to those who thought that they were serving God, was it not? The people who were the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they thought they were serving God by having this upstart, this Jewish teacher killed. They were doing Satan's bidding, as were the people in Smyrna. So we understand the one who gives counsel, and also we've seen he who understands what his bride is going through and will continue to go through. But he doesn't leave it there. Jesus doesn't leave it there and just go, I know what you're going through, deal with it. No, he gives an answer. He gives the counsel. Now, to be, be deadly honest with you here, if I weren't tied to the seas, I would have said he, exhort, he gives you exhortation. I'm sorry. You can cross that counsel out and put exhortation if you'd like. But even though you put, before you put the eyes on the words on the screen, even before you look at the scripture verse that I'm going to quote, and even before your ears hear the words that, I'm being, that are going to be uttered, we really would have liked him to say something different. I'm a human. I would have really liked him to say something different. I would want to hear, I'm going to remove all of these problems from your life. I'm going to take those who are persecuting you and get, they're going to get theirs. Now, not later, now. I'm going to turn these lemons into lemonade. I'm going to get you out of this. But that isn't what he said. <laughs> and many times we have to understand that this isn't what he says. If this is what he says to us too. Jesus tells them in verse 10, the first part of verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. 
Do not fear what you are about to suffer. And literally, do not keep fearing or stop fearing. Stop it. He knows we're human. He knows what our tendencies are, but God has ordained that suffering is a part of following Jesus. How's that for health and wealth? And if we are his disciples, what's a disciple do? A disciple follows the footsteps of his master. Well, you might ask why. And it's okay to ask why. Because when we have to deal with suffering, we're going, okay, why possibly, why is someone I love, or why am I, or why are my brothers and sisters having to go through this? when it seems contrary to common sense. Now remember, God's ways are not man's ways. So why suffering? And I borrow this list from the late John Volverd. Well, the first reason that suffering is allowed is it could be discipline. It could be discipline. Remember, there is not punishment for the believer, but there is discipline. You're going, what is the difference? Discipline wants to build you up. It wants to give you sanctification. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 30 to 32, where Christians were eating eating and drinking the Lord's Supper. They were coming to church drunk. They were drinking the wine before the other poor believers were able to get there. They were not getting along with each other very well. They were putting each other down. And they were eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. And the Lord put some of them into, with illness, and some of them had even fallen asleep. It wasn't a nap. They were dead. Why? Because God demands a holy church. A holy church. The Hebrews 12 passage is a very good parallel to our study this morning. I encourage you to take a look at it later. The second reason that God allows suffering, it can be preventative. What? Yeah, preventative. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know whether it was a physical ailment, a group of people. We don't know. But God allowed it. Three times Paul asked, get rid of it. Is there any way that you can keep the screens up there any longer? I don't know how that works, but if you can, you're good, Jessica. You're good. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Okay, where I would go after I yelled at the nice little gal that runs the computer her first or second time there where she's going to be crying in tears right now. I'm never doing this again. Yeah, I know. All right, what would have happened if, Paul, if God had not moved in? Paul said himself, I could have become conceited. When, the, when God allowed the thorn in the flesh, what had happened? Paul had just seen heaven. He had seen things that people had not seen before. And I think that would, might puff you up a bit, huh? 
So it can be for that reason. The other reason God uses suffering is that we would learn obedience. The Word of God declares, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And possibly shocking to us, did you know that Christ learned through suffering? The book of Hebrews tells us when Christ was on earth, he learned obedience through what he suffered, even though he was a son of God. Why did he go through it? Because everything that Christ went through, we might go through. The last, fourth, and finally, when we suffer, we often can have a better testimony. In Acts 9, Paul, who was Saul at the time, was on his horse heading to Damascus. I'm going to go get be some Christians. I'm going to take them back to Jerusalem, and I don't care if they die on the way because he's stamping them out because they're just a bad sect. And God, in his mercy knocks him off of his horse and blinds him. What? That doesn't seem very nice. Well, what do you think Paul's testimony would have been if he just said, well, I, had, I converted. I, have a, I had to change a heart. I'm just going with you. We can relate. We can relate to someone who's, who has given up much, who has, the price has been paid very highly because they followed Christ. Suffering is certainly not desired. I don't expect anyone here, to, please don't go out and go, bring it on. It's not what God is asking. But when it is allowed and designed by an infinitely wise and loving God, we can stop being afraid and rest in the outcome. Well, God tells them what will happen, continuing in verse 10. He says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. Well, for the inquiring minds, all right, concerning the 10 days, what is, what's it mean here? Some say it means each day was a time that a Roman emperor reigned, starting at Nero's day. Well, if you have been with us, I think we know that John didn't write the book of Revelation until 95 or 96 A.D. Nero reigned in the 60s. So you really have to crush a round post into a square hole or a square peg for this, whatever it is. Some think it's symbolic for a short amount of time. I don't have a problem with this thinking it could be 10 days, 10 little days. But whatever it means, one thing is for certain, and hear me. God has control of the thermostat. God has control of that torch I know this isn't fun to think about this suffering, folks. I know it isn't, but God has control of it, and he will not allow it to go on any farther or any longer than he deems necessary. 
For the Christ follower, it can only go on, maybe in our worst case scenario, until our last breath. But think of what is after that. John writes Jesus' words, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. So the possibility of martyrdom comes into the picture. The ultimate test of faithfulness and those in Smyrna were told to be faithful even when it could and for some would come to this. One of the best known martyrs in the church in church history was a man who had studied at the feet of John. Okay, I'm talking about John the Apostle. This man had studied when he was a young man, when John was old. And for years, this man had been the bishop of Smyrna, and again, severe persecution had begun to, out, to have an outbreak among Asia Minor. The man's name is Polycarp. And I'm going to read you just a story about his ultimate witness to Christ. It was the time of the public games, and the city was crowded, and the crowds were excited, and suddenly the shout went up, Away with the atheists! Let Polycarp be searched for! Now, no doubt that Polycarp could have escaped, but already had had a dream vision. He had a, had a, a vision in a, in a dream, and he saw the pillow under his head had turned to fire. And he told those around him, I'm going to be burned alive for Jesus. His whereabouts was betrayed by a slave who collapsed under torture. They came to arrest him. Not even the police captain wished to see Polycarp die. They liked the man. On the brief journey to the city, he pled with the old man, what harm is it to say Caesar is Lord? What harm is there to say that? And to offer sacrifice and be saved. But Polycarp was adamant that for him, only Jesus Christ was Lord. And when he entered the arena, you think about it, the picture. He entered the arena, and the proconsul gave him the choice of cursing the name of Christ and making sacrifice to Caesar or death. Here are your choices, old man. All you have to do is say the words. Polycarp said, 80 and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king? who saved me. The proconsul threatened him with burning. And Polycarp replied, you threaten me with fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched? For you do not know that the, what the fire that awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Let's do this. My words, not Polycarp's. So the crowds came flocking with embers from the workshops and from the baths. And remember the synagogue of Satan? 
and the Jews, even although they were breaking the Sabbath law by carrying such burdens, were foremost in bringing wood for the fire. Please do not think that I'm anti-Semitic. I am not being that way. As they were trying to bind him to the stake, he was already in the, in the wood, and they were going to take nails and nail him to a, a post. He said, lead me as I am, for he who gives me power to endure the fire will grant me to remain in the flames unmoved, and even without the security you will give me by the nails. So they left him loosely bound in the flames. I know as I prepared this message today, I have known nothing about what this man endured. I cannot, I, I don't oida him. I have not witnessed this. I have not from experienced what Polycarp and those in the congregates of Smyrna and elsewhere must have endured because I live in the United States of America last time I checked. And in 2020, well, that might be persecution, 2020. But we often think that persecution is a thing that happened in the past. Church, it is not. As you hear my voice, wherever you are today, there are people dying, specifically in Nigeria, today. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who have been attacked by Muslim militants. They've attacked Christian villages, burned Christian churches, killed specifically targeted Christian pastors. And little if nothing is done by the authorities in these areas. This is only one country. Persecution is happening all around the world. And the one who was first and the last who died and came to life, said this in his manifesto. We studied it in the past months. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, the, are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But I want many of you to understand this. Before we think persecution is the only suffering or hardship that God allows, I want us to think again. I'd like to borrow from a very helpful statement that Pastor Phil Fingelval made concerning the topic of suffering. He asked this, is persecution the only form which suffering takes for a Christian? And he quotes author and pastor John Piper and said, Piper says it is not. 
In his book, Desiring God, there is a chapter entitled Suffering, and he believes that although much of the suffering experienced by Christians comes as a result of choosing to be openly Christian in risky situations, all situations are risky in one way or another. If you're a Christian, if you make yourself known, yes, it's risky. But listen, if I choose to be a follower of Christ in the way that he directs, I choose all that path includes under his sovereign providence. Let me read that again. I choose all that path includes under his sovereign providence. Whatever God brings to you, you living a faithful life, All suffering, which comes in the path of obedience, is suffering with and for Christ. What am I saying? Whether it's due to cancer or conflict, enzymes or enemies, our path and our suffering is chosen. That means it's chosen by God. It's allowed by God for you. Either God is sovereign or he is not. And because it is chosen, that is, that is we choose to take the path of obedience where the suffering occurs and we do not murmur or complain against God. God is sovereign. He is good. And he cares for each and every one of us. Well, Jesus sends his message to the suffering church with the challenge. The challenge that every church and every Christian through the ages is called to hear and heed. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. the ultimate promise made by the one who provides the strength to fulfill it. <laughs> what can man do to us? What can man do to me? What can man do to you? But perhaps we need to ask, what has God done for us? What has God done for me? What has God done for you? I want to conclude this morning by, revisit, by revisiting the most important command in this passage, at least for me it is. Verse 10, do not fear. Simple, three words. Do not fear, stop fearing. What could it mean for me? What could it mean for you? Stop fearing to engage in a spiritual conversation with a neighbor or a client or an adversary. Stop being afraid if your company is beginning to give layoffs. Stop being afraid to step into other people's lives 
and love them by telling them the truth, putting an arm around them. Yes, I said it. Putting an arm around them and touching them and loving them. Show them God's love. Now, before I go on, I went off script there. Please respect other people as you leave the building today. I'm not joking. Maybe air hugs. But we need each other. Stop being afraid. Stop being afraid to call that person God puts on your heart. Don't just text them. Call them. And if you can, go see them. See them. How can I, how can you be faithful? How can you turn your worry? This is what I'm about it. How can I turn my worry, my fear, into faith? How can this happen? You have to bring your thoughts into captivity. You cannot, we cannot let our minds wonder, what if this could happen? What if this could happen? What if this is, what is truth? Meditate on the truths of God. Maybe start here. Look at the promises of Psalm 23. An elder friend of mine wrote about that. Where does God lead us? He leads us, yes, he leads us into green pastures. He makes us lie down. He leads us beside still waters, but he also takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. It's a scary place to be. And why will we not fear? I will not be afraid. Because why? Because you are with me. Stop being afraid. Like the Sacropria moth. Let the tribulation... Let the hardship, with God's guidance and God's help, build you into something beautiful that you have never would have had without it. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And I thank you, too, that you have written to us and have told us the truth. But Lord God, the truth is at the end of all things, those who conquer will receive life. And we can only conquer through our Lord Jesus Christ who upholds us In Polycarp's case, he held him in the fire. For our case, might hold us through disease. But you are there, and we conquer by the blood of the Lamb. We thank you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.